All right. Welcome back. Come on in. Find your seat. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. If you're new, uh, we take that five-minute break every week, so that's something that you can plan on and kind of count on. We didn't used to do that, but we had to find a way to get all of our kids out of here. If the room feels a little more empty, that's because something like 100 people leave when we send all of our kids and our volunteers out of the room to go to their classes and get started. I also want to say to you, if you're new, uh, I try every once in a while to just to highlight this. We have information packets at the welcome table that are in that really small lobby that you walked through on your way in this morning. Uh, and if you haven't already received one, just feel free to grab one today. You can get one on your way out of here. Um, I know especially when military families are looking for a new church, they want to make that decision relatively quickly. And so we've tried to be really, really transparent with what's available in this. We have our constitution and bylaws. We have what we teach. We have our membership covenant. So uh, if you want one, make a note to grab one, please. And this would be a good primer for you if you're planning on coming to the Starting Points event at the end of the month. Kind of give you a heads up on where we land on some things so that you could be prepared to ask whatever questions that you want to ask. So... Uh, okay, I want to take a couple of minutes before we jump into today's sermon because we're kind of coming out of, from a preaching standpoint, our uh, summer semester. I want to let you know where we're headed between today and the end of the year, just so you can kind of be praying about these different sermon series. And also, because you may hear me mention something uh, that you would like to ask a question about, or you would, you're always welcome to approach me and let me know if you'd like me to make a particular emphasis or explain something that maybe feels a little bit obscure to you. Uh, today and for the next two weeks, we're going to be doing sort of a rapid-fire recap uh, of what we've looked at so far in the way of spiritual practices, or what you may have heard referred to as spiritual disciplines in the past. Um, our objective is today to make it through that first sort of 10-part intro series. I'm not going to re-preach 10 sermons worth of stuff to you today, but just try to achieve the same objective. Get to the same marker, refresh your memory a little bit, maybe remind you why we're doing this, why this is important. Uh, and then next week, we'll do the same thing for the Silence and Solitude series that we did last fall. I'll try to kind of summarize that, wrap it up for you in one single teaching. And then the following week, we'll do the same thing with prayer, which is a series that we did earlier in 2023. Uh, a year ago, if you don't know, we decided that we were going to try to incorporate some spiritual discipline teaching into the way that we do the preaching rhythm on Sunday mornings here at True North. And so we're taking our time going back and forth basically between two things, two categories. Category one is the book of Mark, and we've made it as far as Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. That's where we stopped back at the end of June. Uh, we took a break in July because people were kind of coming and going, and I tried to teach more at the level of our kids. Uh, but the rest of this year, you're going to hear me talk a little bit about Mark, and then we're going to talk about some of these other spiritual practices. So for the rest of August, we'll be dealing with primarily a recap of where we've been so far. Hopefully that won't be boring or a waste of your time. We have a lot of new people, so I'm going to try to kind of get you on board with where we're going, because then in September, we're going to do our next practice, which is going to be simplicity. You might be thinking, simplicity seems like more of a mindset. What does that have to do with Christianity? Well, traditionally in Christianity, simplicity was a practiced discipline of Christians. It's part of the reason why, if you go back past 1517, when we were all Catholics, like it or not, uh, there were huge, giant subsets of Catholic people who spent almost all of their time trying to simplify their life. Now, I'm not, I don't want to make you Catholic, nor do I want to make you a monk or a nun, but we're going to spend about four weeks in September talking about simplicity, and we're going to try to learn that from the example that we get in Jesus' life. After that, like I told you, we'll be back in Mark. That'll be the majority of the month of October. We'll probably also have a baptism Sunday somewhere toward the end of October, so if you're interested in being baptized, this is your short PSA to let an elder know so that we can take your schedule into account when we plan when we want to do that. Uh, and then in November, probably the sermon series that I'm most excited about 
remaining on our calendar for the rest of this year is forgiveness. Not just what it is, but forgiveness as a spiritual practice. What if we viewed being able to and being willing to and then actually forgiving people as a symptom of what it meant to follow Jesus practically? What would it take for us to do that? And how would that be different maybe from the idea of forgiveness that we play with a lot in a church setting? I'm not gonna give away my answer to that question, but I'm really excited to do that with you. And then as we do every year, we'll spend some time in December, the four Sundays prior to Christmas in an Advent series where we'll spend time both remembering that Jesus did come and kind of trying to anticipate with the nation of Israel and the waiting world his birth at Christmas, but also reminding ourselves he's coming back and trying to anticipate what that means for the lives that we live day to day. So for most of you, this probably doesn't matter a lot, but I know a couple of you guys are nerds on this stuff like I am, so I just want to let you know we've got a plan. This is where we're headed. And as I said a minute ago, if there's any one of these that is particularly interesting or, or jogs or sparks a question for you, uh, let me know, especially the two sermon series that we're going to do in September and November. I'll teach in between those Sunday mornings. I'll do a midweek teaching that'll give me a chance to address questions that you may have or further clarify how to do these things, how you can do them, why you would want to, etc. So that's where we're headed. I would take questions, but that's not really what we do. So just let me know. If you have questions at the end of the service, you can always email me. Uh, let me know if you want to know more about any of this stuff, and I'll be happy to share it with you. Today, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus of Nazareth. And we're gonna to try to answer this question. Here's our objective today. We wanna to talk about the answer to the question, how do I follow Jesus? How, what do I actually do? I want to do it, I've decided I'm going to do it. Now what does doing it actually look like? So I would invite you, if you're willing, to turn in your Bible to the first verse of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Uh, we're gonna have the verses for you on the slide. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that's okay. If you have one though, it's, it's worth probably the extra effort to get it out and take a look at it. Uh, I recommend a brick-and-mortar Bible, if you will, uh, on Sundays, a real one in your hands that uh, nobody can edit without you knowing. I think that would be a really good idea, but if you don't have one, that's fine. And if you want one, we'll give you one. We have a whole room full of them down in, uh, in the office area today. So John 15, here's the context. Jesus is about to die on the cross. That's what's going on. If you are familiar with the story of Jesus, you know that early in his teaching, we've seen this in the book of Mark as early as chapter 3, that Jesus teaches in stories that are really hard to follow at first. And it's kind of like, okay, why is he being obscure? Why does it seem like there's a little bit of a veil around what he's teaching? Well, he explains that, but as he gets closer and closer to the end of his life, what we would call the climax of the Gospels when Jesus goes to the cross, he becomes more and more clear and more and more plain because he's speaking to a smaller and smaller group. He's willing to share what we might call the secrets of the kingdom of God. They're not really secrets, but they're hard for us to grasp without Jesus teaching them to us, those kinds of ideas become very apparent and very plain. And so you may be used to the Jesus that says things like, if you throw seed on the ground, it might grow, it might not, and that's what the kingdom of God is like. And it kind of leaves you going, I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't have any, I don't do that. I don't throw seeds on the ground, so I don't know how that works. Jesus here in John 15 is going to sound very different. It's going to be like drinking out of a fire hydrant a little bit. So just stick with me. He's going to say a lot. It's going to be extremely direct. It may be kind of like overwhelming a little bit at first. I'm gonna to try to walk you through this, and I think you'll see that as we look at the first 17 verses today of John chapter 15, that it's always been Jesus' intention that people who want to follow him know how to do that. He's never intended for it to be a mystery. He never wanted it to be something where you have to be in church a certain amount of time, or you have to go to so many Bible studies, or you have to be able to read Greek or Hebrew, or else you won't be able to. Jesus' intention is for this to be as plain as day, as straightforward, not easy, but as straightforward as it possibly can be. So with that in mind, 
Let's hear from Jesus. This is John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to the apostles, the inner ring of his disciples, and he says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father, that's capitalized because we're talking about God, my father is the gardener. So that means the father takes care of the vine. That's Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father. He says in verse 2, my father takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. And he prunes every branch that does bear fruit so that it will bear even more fruit. You, speaking to these apostles, are clean. You're clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have taught you, I have inspired you, you're good. Don't hear me talk about God pruning and God throwing away broken branches. I'm not trying to spook you guys. I'm just telling you this is how it's going to work broadly In Christian history. These guys don't know what Jesus is about to do, but he does. He realizes the time of his personal ministry is going to end, and moving past the point of his resurrection, most of the ministry Jesus will do in the world will be by way of his Holy Spirit, who's a lot harder to sense and discern, and so Jesus is being as plain as he can be before that time comes. He says, remain in me. This is verse four. Remain or abide in me. Live in me, in my presence, and I will also abide in you. I will live in you. I think this is where we get that thing that Christians talk about, Jesus living in your heart, and it's not really ever in the Bible exactly like that, but that's what we're talking about, Jesus inhabiting the life you have, that the decisions you make with your body, your mind, and your spirit are totally different if you belong to Jesus than the ones you would make on your own. He goes on to say, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. I think Jesus is answering the question that we're asking. How do I follow you? Specifically, these 11 apostles who remain, Judas has already left the building at this point. The 11 apostles who remain are sitting with Jesus at a dinner table. They're having a ceremonial meal they've had many times, except this time, Jesus has just finished telling them that all the stuff that they thought the ceremony represented, it doesn't really represent. It's actually all about him, and it always has been. So it's a little bit of culture shock for them there. But then he's alluding to the idea that he's going somewhere. There's a point early in the meal where he says, I have to leave, and Peter jumps up and says, I'm going with you. Where are we going, Jesus? My suitcase is already in the car. Where are we headed? And Jesus says, you can't go where I'm going. The thing that I'm about to do next, you won't be able to do. I have to do it for you. And then I'll come back, and then I'll go away for good, and they don't understand any of that. But they're first, just right now, in this moment that we're reading into in John 15, they're just now starting to process that Jesus is going to maybe go away. And I think if you and I were on a hike, and I said, hey, I'm going to go this direction and try to get that peak, and I want you to go that direction and get that peak, but I also want you to follow me you would say, no, that's crazy. What are you talking about? If I follow you, I have to go where you're going. But I would say, no, just follow me, but I have to go where you can't go. You need to go there, but follow me. It wouldn't make any sense to you. I think in the same way the disciples are looking at Jesus and they're hearing him say, there's a way to follow him that leads away from the thing that he's about to do, but then also eventually will lead back to him, and they're confused. So that's what Jesus is speaking into, is that tension, that confusion, that kind of idea of like, All right, Jesus, are we back in parable territory here? Is this literal? Is it not? Is this more seeds on the ground? Or are you actually telling us what you really want us to do? The answer to that question, how do we follow Jesus? I think the first piece, there's three big pieces that we're going to talk about today. The first piece comes right out of the verses that we just read. So I'll give it to you, and then I'll try to explain to you what I mean. The answer to the first question would be that we need to belong to Jesus. That's part one. That's what everybody 
who has any chance in the world of following Jesus needs to start with. If you want to go where Jesus is going to go, if you want to do what he says to do, if you want to become the kind of person who can even go where Jesus says to go or does what Jesus says to do, you have to belong to him first. That means you can't use him. Uh, You can't force him to follow you. You can't change what he says or what he's like to fit your preferences. It starts by coming to him and giving him your own life. Why? Because Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher. Jesus isn't advising people on how to have a better human life in the Gospels. What he's doing is he, being God himself, is telling people who are incapable of doing what God says to do, to do what God says. He's saying to them, I want you to live this kind of life. There are multiple places in his teaching where he literally uses the word perfect to describe the way that a person is supposed to live if they're going to follow him. Now, you and I are old enough to know that's not going to happen. It hasn't happened so far. There's nothing on the horizon that tells us that suddenly we're going to become perfect. Certainly in eternity, God will remove the presence of sin and things will go the way that they're supposed to. But as long as we live life on earth, we're going to have problems. We're going to fall down. We're going to make mistakes. And oftentimes, it won't be falling down and making mistakes, which sounds passive. It'll be that we ran as fast as we could to the things that hurt us and the people around us the worst because we're people and that's the way that we live. Jesus understands this. Jesus is asking a group of men who can't do it to try to walk in the footsteps of God himself because he is God. None of us has the moral strength to live perfectly. Most of us have never even tried, but even if you have tried to be perfect, you know that it didn't last very long. So what do we do? Well, I can tell you that a lot of people who fill up seats in churches, they fake it. That's their answer. They find a way to look like and sound like and talk like they're really super healthy spiritually. They got everything going right in their life. They're totally grounded. They're growing in grace and patience and mercy and generosity, but they've learned to do those things like a stage play. The inner person, the heart, the, the, the actor underneath the character that they're playing is disconnected from those things, isn't really participating in those things, hasn't become the kind of person who could do those things. And frankly, for you and I, oftentimes, most of our church experience It's just like this. We're shoulder to shoulder with people looking at a stage, and that's fine, but we don't always know those people, and we don't even really care to know them past a certain level. Therefore, it's easy in a setting like this to both act and be acted to as if everything is going well when it's really not. Now, if you don't want to do that, maybe you're the kind of person who says being genuine and wrong is better than being fake and looking like you're right. Well, then the other option that you have without Jesus, if you're not going to settle for fake perfection, is your own inner despair. You can just embrace that you'll be very sad and upset and frustrated and angry the rest of your life because you're not going to fake it, but you don't have any of the tools you need on your own to change your life, to become the kind of person who can live in a way that blesses other people and helps other people and makes the right decisions even when no one is watching and honors God. Or if both of those sound like they're not going to work for you, you could give your life away. And that's what Jesus invites you to do. You could take the thing that you can't fix, that you don't have the tools to repair, and you could give it to the person who designed it and allow him to fix it on every level. Once you do that, if you trade away your life, you trade away all of your responsibility to get it right, and you give it to Jesus, the only person who has ever been able to handle that kind of pressure, at that point, you belong to him. You can't give Jesus your life only on the weekends. There's no shared custody between yourself and God the Father. You're in or you're out. You're his or you're not. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that so that you understand that what Jesus expects you to do is to just crash and burn at his feet. That's what it looks like to surrender to him. 
He doesn't need you to clean your life up so that it's worth a little bit more and it doesn't make him have to do quite as much work. No, you can't do it. In fact, that would be a waste of time and is actually two steps back instead of a step forward in the first place. Jesus expects broken people to crash and burn at his feet and to give them their misery, the responsibility that they live under that crushes their souls, people like you and I who can't get it right on our own. At that point, if we can do that, that's the starting place for following Jesus because we have to be, quote, in Christ. That's the language the New Testament uses over and over and over again. We have to do that if we really to intend to do the kinds of things that Jesus taught. So following Jesus starts with belonging to him because if you don't belong to him, then you don't have his spirit and you can't actually follow him. You can't do any of the things that he said to do. Look back at what Jesus said in John 15, in verse one specifically, if you have your Bible open. Jesus refers to himself as the true vine. Now what does that mean? That means that probably, for the people in the room, there are other vines. Or at least there are people who look like they might be other vines, other opportunities, other people who you would say, I like what that person stands for, I like how that person talks, I like the success, I like the, the financial future of that person, I like whatever it is that I can look at from the outside and say, I want it, so I'm going to just get in line behind that person, and maybe they can be my vine." and I'll be their branch. Or maybe, maybe this is often for us, I think, our Christian lives, Jesus can be the vine on Sunday, that's great. But on Saturday, the vine is gonna be me and what I want, and then Monday through Friday, the vine is gonna be my boss or my CEO or that guy whose podcast I listen to way more than I ever read my Bible, and Jesus is saying all of those other vines are fake. They're not vines, they're branches. And if you break a branch off a tree, and graft another branch into it and lay it in your yard, both branches will be dead the next day. They can't sustain themselves or each other. Again, I'm not trying to threaten you. I just want you to understand, Jesus is being very plain here. He's saying, I am the only vine with roots. I am the only vine that God the Father, who I refer to as the gardener, cares to walk around and help, to prune, to pull the dead branches off. God is actively involved in the abiding in Christ that makes up the Christian life. If you're abiding in anything but Jesus... God doesn't have very much to do with it. That's not a hopeful scenario for your future, for your kids, for your family, for your money, whatever it was that you believed would get better because you grafted yourself into this other vine. Jesus says in verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not my words, his. I don't think we think that's true. I think we think that apart from Jesus, we can do some things or enough or most things. Jesus says without him, it's all a big act. It's a play. You're on a stage. None of it's real. It's smoke. It's mirrors. And it feels so good, but it does nothing to your inner life. In verse 4, Jesus tells his apprentices to stay in him or to abide. And to stay somewhere, you have to be there to begin with, right? I can't tell you to stay in a place that you've never been. I have to tell you to stay where you are right now. The implication Jesus is making is that for these apostles, they are already in him. They belong to him already. They just need to keep on belonging. It also implies that you can stop belonging at some point. Now, I'm not trying to question your salvation. I'm just saying when it comes to the daily abiding in Christ, you have a lot of agency. You get to decide what you do when you wake up in the morning. Almost none of us has ever had an experience where God has sent an angel to wake us up in the middle of the night and walk us through the next 24 hours of our lives. We haven't. Most of our trying to follow Jesus is built on knowing what we should be doing and then doing some of it or trying as hard as we can and failing, but it has very little to do with the day-to-day -day grace and mercy of Jesus, and that's what we need. That's why belonging to Jesus is so critical, because we belong before we follow. Otherwise, we're going to follow Jesus for a day or two based on our own willpower. We're going to try as hard as we can, then we're going to crash and burn, but we're going to crash and burn and turn away. We're not going to crash and burn and turn, turn toward. We're going to say to God, I tried it your way. 
which isn't really true because God's way is starting with the grace of Jesus. But we're going to say, I tried it your way. I tried to fulfill your law. I tried to keep your rules. It didn't work for me. So forget you. I'll go to church so that my life group doesn't like freak out on me, but I, I'm not really sold on the inside anymore. I don't really believe it. I'm not really sure. I don't think it's going to work for me. Branches that exist on their own or that are plugged into other branches that are faking it and acting like they are vines, um, they don't make fruit, but they're great kindling. That's what Jesus says. And I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's a hell threat. I think Jesus is just saying, you can have a purpose, but it's not gonna be bearing fruit. Just don't expect it to bear fruit. You don't throw a bunch of sticks in a pile in the woods, light it with lighter fluid and throw a match in and expect strawberries to grow. You expect it to burn. That's what it's for. You expect fruit to grow from plants that are firmly rooted, that have been watered well, and that have sunlight and all the things that they need. And Jesus says that he is the way. I've probably made that point. So I wanna say this to you. Earlier today, you watched the video announcement that Megan Howes and I made about what's called the New City Catechism, which is just a tool to kind of help kids and families orient themselves around God's word. The first question in the New City Catechism is this. It asks us, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we belong, excuse me, that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with catechisms, and I bet like one of you is, the Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1500s as part of the Protestant Reformation, starts with a similar question and answer. And the kids' version of this is shorter. So if you're reading that and you're going, there's no way my four-year-old's gonna get any further than two words into that. That's okay, there's a shorter version, don't worry. This is not a commercial. You already saw the commercial. This is just telling you that even in the way that we're approaching the way that we lead our children, the idea that belonging to God, belonging to Jesus is the primary foundation for our faith. It's lost to a lot of us. People have not taught us this before. We have started in a place where we've been told the most important thing about our faith is whether or not we've prayed correctly, whether or not we've read enough of the Bible, whether or not we have done whatever it was that somebody who loved us with the best intentions beat into our skull as a kid or a teenager that we better do this or else. And what I am telling you is that it's very good to pursue, pursue Jesus. In fact, that's the big point I'm headed toward today. But if you don't start, not only in your Christian life, but every single morning of that life with belonging, start by dwelling on the reality that you are God's, that he has purchased you, God's possessive. You are not God's plural. You are G-O-D apostrophe S. You belong to God, your body, your soul, life, and death. So exhale. Lay down all of the performing. Take the mask off. Quit beating yourself to a pulp. You'll be a lot more productive if you would just believe what Jesus has been trying to tell you all this time. He doesn't need you cleaner. He doesn't need you better. He doesn't need you more professional or more educated. He would love to go on those journeys with you, but if you go without God's grace, you will have the experience that, frankly, many of us have had with the spiritual disciplines in a year and a half where we have believed that this is the missing piece, this is the key, this is the thing. If I would just get this right, then all my Christian problems would go away. No, you're aiming at the wrong objective. You're not starting by belonging to Jesus. If spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, I'm gonna get way more into this next week, but if they are not an exercise in being with God, first and foremost, we will not go anywhere with God if we did not start with him. We meet up with him first thing, and then we can follow him, but we have to belong to him first. Now, why would your elders want your children to memorize something like this? Why would we start with something that's questions and answers, that's open to interpretation, instead of just trying to motivate you guys to do more scripture memory with your kids? The reason is because 
This is what it's all about for Christians. You heard Jesus say in verse five, apart from him, if you don't belong to him, you will accomplish nothing. So the disciples are asking the question in the room that night in John 15. We're asking that question every day of our Christian lives. Jesus, how do I follow you? And the first part of that is that it starts with belonging to him. Body and soul, in life and death, he is our only hope. Let's look at the second piece of the puzzle. Pick the scriptures back up in verse six with me if you don't mind. Jesus says this. He continues to speak to his disciples and he says, if anyone does not remain in me, that person is thrown out like a branch. That branch will dry up. Not threatening you, just don't be surprised. This is what branches do when they're not plugged into a living vine. And such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire. They're burned up. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. I wanna read verse seven to you again slowly. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. That's a little bit different from the way that he said it earlier in verses three and four. He's talking about the idea that we're not just supposed to belong to him, but there's something more to that. It's not just, I found Jesus, he's good, I love him, it's good enough. Jesus then has a set of expectations for our lives. This is where the spiritual disciplines get really tricky for us because we go, well, doesn't Jesus want us to do stuff? Aren't we supposed to try to fill our lives up with Christian actions and activities? Maybe the answer can be yes if you belong to Jesus first, but if you don't, he doesn't want you to go past that point. You can't come through the back door of the Christian household and try to work your way into his grace. It starts with mercy, but then once that mercy is applied, once we've learned to embrace it, it becomes the fuel, the engine for that obedience every day. And I'll just tell you, five years of pastoral ministry in, you learn to tell the difference between people who have grace inside their engine compartment and works inside their engine compartment. Both of those people can show up for a work day on August 19th at 9 a.m., hint, hint, and they can help the church, but one of them will go home glad they did it, and the other will go, whew, okay, finally, got my thing done for this quarter. Maybe not literally, but there's probably going to be a ball game on somewhere in there. I think college football's coming back this month. Their, their kid's going to have some crazy crisis that morning that no one could have possibly ever predicted. There's going to be lots of things that are going to tug and pull, and I'm not saying if you're a good Christian, you just push through and do it. In fact, I'm telling you, being a good Christian, just being a Christian, being a Christian who's faithful to God means you embrace all of that chaos, you allow it to be what it is, you bring it to God, and you say, okay, here we are, God. You allowed my child to have a level 10 meltdown because they found the blue Lego where the red Lego was supposed to be. I don't know why you did that, but I'm gonna need your mercy today, and I'm gonna need you to give me enough to give to this child whose brain I cannot comprehend right now at all, this child that I would mail to their grandparents right now if I could and they can find the Lego in their grandparents' house. That's fine. I don't want to deal with it. When there's mercy in the engine compartment, when we start with that, that we belong to Jesus and he has chosen to call us to himself, we're going to hear him say it in just a minute, then we have the opportunity to take the second step. The second piece of all of this is that we need to behold him. This is the great challenge of evangelicalism in the West, is people learn to belong to him one time in a revival, at a summer camp, at a retreat, and then they never look at him ever again. And they wonder why their life didn't change. I think this is the foundation of so much skepticism against the Christian church, is people just don't come anymore. They show up once, they have a great, probably genuine experience with the Spirit of God, but they don't look at their life and say, I'm gonna have to plan some things differently here now. I'm gonna have to find a way to insert and add in the things of God, primarily his word. I'm gonna need to find a way to worship him. I need a church, I need community. I gotta be praying 
Not because all of those things are the puzzle pieces that make up a perfect little Christian angel that God pats on the head in heaven and says, way to go, you did it, but because that's what it looks like to live life with another person. You speak to them, you hang out with them, you listen to what they have to say, you think about the kinds of things they've asked you to consider, especially when that person is God who made everything. Who else do you really need to hear from? This is what's available to you and I, is beholding Jesus. When he says in verse seven that his words must remain in us, what he is trying to help us understand is that there's gonna be this constant sense of reminding ourselves that we are in God's presence, reminding ourselves that we're in God's presence, putting God's word back in front of our face again, putting God's glory back in front of our face again, hearing the testimonies of what other people have experienced with God that are maybe different from our own experience but that charge us up, that light that fire back inside of us again that tends to go out every night while we're asleep. This is what Jesus has in mind for his disciples, for you and I. The bottom line for us is that we can't expect to learn how to follow Jesus if we're looking anywhere other than Jesus to do that. This is why we can't buy into a kind of all roads lead to Rome spirituality, which is what a lot of your neighbors would like you to believe. It would be nicer, it would hit softer, it wouldn't be offensive, would it, if we could just tell everybody to try their hardest and it'll work out in the end? Then we don't need Jesus, if that's the case. We don't need somebody to die in our place. We don't need strict teaching. We don't even really need mercy. We just need a God that cares a little bit less than ours does. That's not the story the Bible tells. And I think if you've walked with God more than a couple of weeks, you've seen that that's not really the way that the spiritual rules work either in the world. The reason Jesus demands obedience from us is because disobedience leads to death. You would demand obedience from a person who was thinking about stepping off a thousand foot cliff as well. You would say, I don't think you should do that. In fact, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep you from doing that because if you do that, it's going to ruin your life. For that person to turn to you and say, how dare you tell me how to live as they're tumbling over the edge of this cliff to die and never, like, no, you need someone who knows more than you to invade your world and tell you and convince you that following their way would lead to life. The beauty of God is he never misuses his tyranny. He doesn't abuse us the way that people do who have power. He cares for us. He's the safest possible person to be in the driver's seat of our life. What this means is that you can't just follow the teachings of the Buddha and get to God's kingdom. You can't simply believe and follow the example of Muhammad of Islam and get to Jesus and get to God's kingdom. They're not taking you the same place. Even simply doing your best and loving other people isn't going to get you where your soul needs to go. You may ask yourself, Are heaven, paradise, nirvana, enlightenment, are these all other names for the biblical kingdom of God? No, they're not. The kingdom of God is unique. It's set apart. It's real. It can actually change your life. That would be the biggest difference between it and those other things. Christians are different from people of other religions. We don't come to our leader to get heaven. We come to our leader to get our leader. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. Christians come to Jesus to get Jesus. I don't know if you knew that or not. If you didn't know that, Today would be a great day for you to decide if you really want Jesus or not, and maybe today would be the day you would become a Christian. We want to go to heaven because it's where Jesus is. We don't want Jesus just to get us to heaven because heaven's good and nice and it's where we can do all the things that we want. This is gross, but I used to tell teenagers when I was a youth minister, if Jesus chose to live in the broken toilet of the back of a greasy Taco Bell, that's where I want to be, in the water with him. In the, I mean, I don't care, in the filth, in the, just, just ignore me, let me be crazy, but if that's where Jesus is, that's where I want to go. 
But we flip it, man. We turn heaven into this glorified version of a retirement community in South Florida. And we tell ourselves that we're going to go there kind of for a few years, then we're going to die, and we're going to be there forever. And we're going to get to bring our golf bag along and all of our Kenny G CDs that we listen to, right, as we sit and read the National Geographic magazine. I know what it's like to be old. You can't hide it from me. That's not going to heaven. Going to heaven is going to the place you've been longing to go because your spirit was wired to be with God, and it's where he is, and you can be with him. The miracle of Christianity is he came here, so that can start today. That's what beholding Jesus means. Read your Bible cover to cover. Read it every year. Read the Psalms every month. Be disciplined. That's good. But don't forget that the Spirit of God is also alive and well. And beholding Jesus doesn't just look like searching the scriptures for data. It looks like finding the narrative of redemption in all of life. Where is God working? Who is he working in? How can you speak to him? Where could you join him? This is what it means to behold him, to fix our eyes upon Jesus the King. We want to get to Jesus. We want to see him at work in the scriptures. We want to commune with his Holy Spirit. We want to memorize his words. This is why we sing to Jesus. This is why we pray to Jesus. And this is why ultimately we serve Jesus. So we better keep our eyes on him. And this is my warning to you, church. And I understand that this is asking for you to antagonize people like me. But there are a lot of people in the world who would love to convince you that you can watch them, follow them, love them, celebritize them, and that will somehow make you more like Christ. And it's not true. There are many people who call themselves pastors, who have big churches and make lots of money. And they've convinced big groups of well-meaning people who are probably very innocent in their approach to Christianity that all you have to do is watch me and come to my church and wear the branded t-shirt and have the bumper sticker and listen to the radio station and follow the YouTube channel. And if you'll just do those things, then you'll become like Christ. What I'm telling you is there is a thirst in you. If you've met Jesus, there is a desperate, parched thirst in your soul that you just got to get back with him again. And churches that push you away from that are not churches. Churches that do everything in their power to help with that process, to get you into God's presence, to keep you there. Those are churches that are worth your time. This may not be the only church that you ever go to. If I ever become the kind of person who leads you to myself instead of Christ, fire me, please. Read your Bible. Make sure you know that what I'm teaching you comes from God's word. Don't just trust me. Don't let a charismatic guy who can make you laugh every 45 seconds on a Sunday decide whether or not you are in or out of the kingdom of God for you. Take that responsibility. Belong to Jesus and then behold him. And if you find a church where Jesus is high and lifted up, exalted over everything else, then go to that church and love that church and become a part of that church and participate in lifting Jesus high above everything else. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. This is his second letter to the Corinthian church. Paul, if you don't know, is sort of the the church organization and structure guru of the New Testament. And he wrote this to a church in Corinth. Listen closely to how he talks about the Old Testament, part of the Bible. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, We now, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we behave with great boldness, which we do. We sing to God directly. There's lots of faiths that would say, don't do that. He says, we're not like Moses. Remember Moses, the guy from Exodus, led the people across the the big sea and did the miracles. And okay, part of what he used to do is there was this tent outside of the campground where he would go and he would meet with God face to face. And when he came back, they had him wear this shroud, like a, like a wedding veil kind of over his face because his skin would literally glow and it would freak everybody out. And they didn't want to be freaked out. So they asked him to put a mask on and he did. Paul says, Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from staring at the result of the glory, that was what? That was made ineffective. Paul is saying, Even Moses, who used to go into this tent outside of the campground and meet with God face to face, because he didn't have Christ, 
because he couldn't follow Jesus personally, even standing in the glory of God was essentially ineffective for Moses and his people because when it came time to make decisions, they went their own way. They followed their instincts, they followed their heart, their stomachs, whatever their thing was. They did that, they didn't follow God. Paul goes on to say, their minds were closed. To this very day, the same veil remains when anybody hears the old covenant read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is the veil taken away. It is all about Jesus. Look at verse 15. Until this very day, whenever anything that Moses wrote is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, who is the Lord? The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom there. Freedom from what? Well, not to do whatever the heck you want, even though that's how we tend to quote that verse. What it means is there's freedom to know God. You're set free from the bondage of your mind that keeps you from comprehending the ways of God. Paul says in verse 18, we all now, with our own faces unveiled, We don't even have to wear the mask that Moses used to have to mask himself with. We now look at the image of God. We are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another that comes to us from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying to you, even reading the Old Testament is an exercise in futility if you are not looking at Jesus. If you're not more specifically looking for Jesus, The Old Covenant, the Old Testament as a whole, it's a useless set of ancient stories and writings to you and I if Jesus isn't there for us, if we're not finding him around every corner and hidden between the lines. This is the majority of the ministry Jesus did the 40 days he walked the earth after he was resurrected, before he ascended into eternity, is he opened the Old Testament and he helped people realize it's always been about him. It's the conversion story of the eunuch on the road to Ethiopia who was saved as Philip illuminated the book of Isaiah. You ever read Isaiah? Not an easy read. Philip was able to help this man understand this old book, a thousand years old at the point that these guys were reading it, was full to the brim with images and pictures and language that point to Christ. Without Jesus, there's no point. If you're spending your time staring at other stuff, there's no point. And I know this is, it's easy to pick on this kind of stuff, right? Politics, money, the future of your family, your legacy. But it's easy to pick on because we keep doing it. It's the like, top five apps that you hit without even thinking about it in your life on your phone. You're always scrolling something. I know you do it on the toilet. I know. I'm not touching your nasty cell phone. You do it in the bathroom. You lay in bed watching your phone screen so you can't keep your eyes open anymore. It's the first thing you look at in the morning. What do you think that's doing to you? It's shaping you into the image of something. Now, you can use that as a tool to behold Jesus. I know many people who have alarms on their phone to refocus them, bring them back to Christ, remind them to pray, that push Bible verses and things like that up to the top of their priority list. That's great. I don't think God's anti-technology at all. But I'm just trying to help you understand the way that you live your life matters. And what you spend your time looking at, even if that feels passive to you, it shapes you. It shapes your future. It puts you on a trajectory. This is not the kind of thing that I would have expected to hear from a guy who loves the Bible as much as the Apostle Paul. In this same book, just a few verses later, he commends God's people to be saturated in the scriptures, but only if they belong to Jesus first. So you come to Christ, you give him your life, and then you fix your eyes on him. You behold him in every way that you can. First and foremost, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you also see the Spirit of God at work around you in real time. Paul wrote in verse 17 that it's the presence of the Spirit of Jesus. We just read that, that frees our minds to see and understand what Jesus wants. So let me tie that idea into what Jesus said in John 15, 7. Remind you of this. He says, if you remain in me, which is belonging, and my words remain in you, which is beholding, then what? Then you can ask for anything that you want, 
and it'll be granted to you. That sounds insane. That's like the hardest thing to understand about prayer ever in the history of human civilization. We go, really, God, really? Do you understand who you're handing this power to? Me, I can have whatever I want, are you sure? Hmm? But it's the you that belongs to Jesus and has their eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the version of you to whom God will grant whatever your heart desires. So followers of Jesus receive their vision of life by beholding Jesus. That's the second piece of the puzzle on how we follow him. Now, let's land the plane together. The third piece of the puzzle will come to us out of John 15, verses 8 through 17. It's a big chunk of scripture. Sounds like Jesus is kind of repeating himself. I think he does that because he understands that we're probably not going to believe him the first time. So just let this sink in. Let's read it. Jesus says, My Father is honored by this, that you would bear much fruit that you would show that you are my disciples. So that sounds like doing. That's not just abiding. What does Jesus mean? Verse nine. In the same way, he says, that my father has loved me, I have also loved you. So remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, then you will remain in my love. Now, he didn't say, if you obey my commandments, I'll keep loving you. That's not what he said. He said, if you choose to obey my commandments, that will keep you, those will be the boundaries, the fences on the field you live in, that will keep you in my love. Love. So obedience is a piece of this. It's not the first piece, but it's a piece. He goes on to say, I have told you these things, excuse me, second half of verse 10, just as I've obeyed my Father's commandments and I also remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you. Does that sound like your Christian life? Maybe not. And that your joy may be complete. That sounds awesome. My commandment is this, to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And here's the example, verse 13. No one has greater love than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. And that's what Jesus is about to do for everybody who's ever gonna be his friend. They don't know it yet. The disciples aren't sure about this. Obviously, they remember it because John wrote it down later. But Jesus is forecasting for us here a little bit. What's he about to do? The greatest act of love that anybody has ever done for anyone in the history of the world. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves because the slave doesn't understand what his master is doing. But I've called you friends because I've revealed to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you so that you would bear fruit, fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask my father in my name, he will give to you. So this I command to you, to love one another. So here you go. You belong to Jesus. You do everything in your power to fix your eyes upon him what should you expect to happen after that? You're gonna become like him. That's the thing that we try to start with, church. That's the misordering of all of this in our lives is we assume day one we're supposed to try to assert every ounce of our willpower into becoming like Jesus. I'm not gonna lie anymore. I'm not gonna steal. I'm throwing away all of the junk that used to distract and tempt me. Good, those are good things. But if you're not starting with the same mercy that led you to Jesus in the first place and your life isn't actually strategically built so that you see and notice and are aware of acknowledging God, you don't stand a chance at becoming like Jesus. Why would you think that Jesus, who belongs to God the Father, he says, and is constantly looking at God the Father, why would you think that Jesus has both of those pieces in his life but you don't need them in yours? If that's the way that Jesus followed God, why would that not be the exact blueprint for the way that we follow Jesus? But we misprioritize. We feel guilty. Or our parents teach us by example over decades and decades that if you really love Jesus, you do everything the church ever tells you to do. And you teach all the classes and you paint all the classrooms and you go on every mission trip and you give till your family's in financial danger and you do it all and you don't think about it. No. 
Would God lead you to give sacrificially? I think so. How would you ever know if you're not looking at him and you don't belong to him? How would you know? You're listening to somebody else trying to convince you that A plus B equals C. And Jesus is saying, you're skipping A and B. You're trying to just strap C on with duct tape. Good works, and I'm going to figure it out today, and I'm going to be nicer than I was before. Does that work? Can you make it past 10 a.m.? Even if you get up at 9.30, can you make it past 10 a.m.? I don't think so. And I'm sorry for us, because we stink, man. We stink like the world. We do things just like people who don't know Jesus, and we don't even think about it. We don't know better. We haven't been watching him. We're not listening. We're not there. We spend all of our time trying to go on these extravagant, maybe exciting, maybe scary kind of mission ventures. This is the big push we make as evangelicals, is to go where no man's ever been before. When Jesus came to us, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make to you today. How do you follow Jesus? You follow Jesus. And I know that probably seems a little bit mean to just say it like that. I don't think you're dumb. I think you've been discipled poorly. I have too. You've been taught what not to do instead of what to do. And my objective is I try to unpack these practices for you is to give you options. It's not to build a new type of Christianity. If anything, it's to push you back in human history toward when people knew how to do this and we've kind of lost it and forgotten. That's my objective. Because the bottom line is you're gonna turn into somebody. You're gonna be transformed into somebody by somebody. And that can either be shaped in the image of Christ by Jesus or it can be God's enemy shaped in the image of the world. Those are your options. You don't get to be shaped in your own image. It doesn't work. Your image naturally because of your sin is the image of God's enemy and the world. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. It's self-destruction. And the great tragedy, this is the last thing I'll say to you today and then I'm gonna pray for you. The great tragedy of the modern Western church, in my opinion, is that God's enemy has convinced us to focus on superstitious, weird cultural stuff all the while he is discipling our inner life into his own image. We, as Western Christians, have almost always embraced a kind of Christianity that fights for stuff that we think God might care about, but does it using the tools of God's enemy. We have been discipled in our inner lives to be filled with anger and hatred and fear. We make war on things we don't understand or we don't like. We have become people who carry our swords unsheathed everywhere we go. How many times did Jesus swing a sword? None. None. He was offered two of them on his way to this big climactic fight that was going to happen in the garden. And you know who decided it wasn't going to be a fight? It wasn't the people who came for Jesus. It was Jesus who said, no, we're not going to fight. We're not going to kill anybody in God's name. We're not going to take away things from other people in the defense of what we think is most important in our lives. Church, this is the tragedy of not really following Jesus, is there is a kind of Christianity that is very popular and is exciting. It's sensational. It feels really, really good, and it makes war on people that Jesus died for. We have got to check ourselves. We have got to ask ourselves, what what would change? What would change if the only metric for success in our days was whether or not we had been with God personally? What if that was it? What if that was the only thing that decided the difference between a good day and a bad day? What would happen if you and your spouse actually spent time talking about that at home? What would it look like if when your children asked you why you were making decisions, you were able to genuinely say, take your Christian mask off, put it, bury it, don't ever put it on again, and actually say to your children, I think God is leading me to do this. But I don't know, we'll find out, and if I'm wrong, God will forgive me but I want to do right by him. I've been listening today. I've made time. I've tried to fit things in here and there. I've rebuilt some things about my life because I want God to be my top priority. You can't start with that. You got to belong to Jesus first. 
But getting to that beholding step is tough. A lot of us give up before we get there or we start with trying to become like him and we don't. We invent this weird new cyborg Jesus that does stuff that Jesus would never do and says things that Jesus would never do and justifies us doing those things too. And I want us to reject that wholesale. I want us to become a community of people who love the way that Jesus did, which is harder than we think. And it's transformative. That's what I want for you. So, so okay, how do you actually do all of that? What steps do you take? We'll talk about that next week. I'm gonna try to run through silence and solitude with you next week in about 40 minutes like we did today. Try to explain to you if I can how that's sort of the foundation. The carving out of time and space to be with God is the first step if we really think we're gonna become the kinds of people that are gonna do what Jesus said to do. So let me pray that for you today. I wanna ask God to do that. Father, we love you. Uh, We think, (laughs) we're trying, we want to. For many of us, God, we have no question in our minds that you're good, that you're real, you're present with us. We just don't know what to do with that. It's hard for many of us, Father, and I speak personally here as a person who works at a church. It's very hard to figure out which part of this thing is baby and which part of this thing is bathwater. What do we toss? What do we keep? We don't want to become violent in the name of throwing out a kind of Christianity that's become violent. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the people that are maybe with the best intentions misdiscipling us, Father. And so I pray for clarity for each of us. I think this is good for a church as a group to go through, as a family to work through together, but I pray for individual faith and the openness to just ask the question, what would it mean? What would it mean if we got rid of every other metric for Christian success other than am I abiding in Christ? What if we didn't have to try to do the kinds of things that you said? What if, God, we became the kinds of people who do the things that you say? Help us to wrestle with that idea As we're in our life groups this week, God, as we bat that ball around, let us be honest. That friction, that pull, that kind of seatbelt that we feel when we start thinking about this stuff and we go, but I could never, my life, my kids, my responsibility, my schedule, I could never. God, remind us, remind us that your spirit comes to free our minds, that we can see you at work, that we do understand what you want and we become able to find a way. That's what we want. I pray, God, that you would remind us, especially today, that your mercy is for us, that we are forgiven and that you have very little concern with where we've been so far, God. You just want us to go with you moving forward. We love you, and we trust you to do these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.